Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. An Erio's original. I was born with a special gift. The ability to mentally transform any situation into the worst case scenario in my own brain. My therapist calls my gift catastrophizing. And that's why I'm uniquely qualified to scrutinize and analyze history's greatest disasters and find out who's to blame. They say history repeats itself. Not on my watch. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith and I am The Alarmist. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into The Alarmist, a comedy podcast where we talk about history's greatest tragedies and figure out who's to blame. Today we're discussing The Little Rock Nine. Here's what you need to know. In 1954, the landmark ruling of the U.S. Supreme Court on Brown v. Board of Education stated that segregated schools were unconstitutional. At the time, Jim Crow laws continued to be in force, and the fight for civil rights had yet to reach its turning point. A year later, in 1955, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a bus to a white passenger. This sparked the year-long Montgomery bus boycott and gave rise to a young leader in the movement, Martin Luther King Jr. But the Supreme Court ruling of Brown v. Board of Education back in 1954 had not stated how states should implement the desegregation of schools, and by 1957, schools in the South were still not integrated. In Arkansas, Little Rock's school board had pledged to voluntarily desegregated schools, yet their plan had been met with much anger by the city's white citizens. After paring down their initial plan, 
The decision was made to let nine African-American students enroll in Little Rock's Central High School. These nine teenagers would come to be known as the Little Rock Nine. The nine were Minnie Jean Brown, Elizabeth Eckford, Ernest Green, Thelma Mothershed, Melba Patillo, Gloria Ray, Terrence Roberts, Jefferson Thomas, and Carlotta Walls. On September 4, 1957, the first day of school, Elizabeth Eckford was the first to arrive on campus, but what she encountered was not what she had expected. An angry mob of segregationist protesters yelled obscenities at her just outside of the school. Surrounding the building stood troops from the Arkansas National Guard, which had been called out by the state's governor, Orville Faubus. Elizabeth attempted to enter the school, but she was turned away at every entrance. Unable to get inside, she left campus on a city bus. Of her experience, Eckford later said, quote, I tried to see a friendly face somewhere in the mob, someone who maybe would help. I looked into the face of an old woman, and it seemed a kind face. But when I looked at her again, she spat on me. Others of the nine had arrived that day and gathered with a group of local ministers who were there to support them as they made their way inside. But they too were turned away. For the next three weeks, the nine waited at home for word on when they could return to the school. A federal judge ordered Governor Faubus to stop interfering, and the guardsmen were removed from the front of the school. On September 23rd, the nine entered Central High School for the first time, but their attendance was short-lived. According to the Encyclopedia of Arkansas, a crowd had formed outside and chanted, 2468, we ain't gonna integrate. They also chanted, go back to Africa. The crowd chased and beat black reporters who were covering the events. Fearful that the unruly mob would continue to escalate, the Little Rock police removed the students from school around 10 a.m. that morning. In a 2017 interview for The Guardian, Minnie Jean Brown stated, quote, I really think that we were afraid to look at the mob, at least I was. So we just heard it, and it was like a sports event. That sound, the roar, but it was a roar of hatred and just thinking about it makes me shake. What about you, sir? Do you think the college students will show up? If I got anything to do with it, they won't show up. Well, I think it's a breaking point of the school integration. I just don't uh, feel that they have a right to go to school. Under pressure, after the situation in Little Rock had drawn international attention, President Eisenhower sent out 1,200 members of the U.S. Army and placed the Arkansas National Guard under federal orders. Such an extreme situation has been created in Little Rock. This challenge must be met, and with such measures as will preserve to the people as a whole their lawfully protected rights in a climate permitting their free and fair exercise. This is Central High School, Little Rock, Arkansas. Troops, which for nearly three weeks lined the sidewalk here in front of the high school under orders to keep the colored students out, have been replaced now from their orders to comply with the law, which means let the Negro students in if they come in. Just got a report here on this end that the students are in. Do you feel it's worth it going through this? Yes, I do. On September 25, 1957, the nine returned to Central, escorted by federal troops, and attended their first full day of classes. 
The troops remained at Central for the rest of the school year, yet the Nine still endured unthinkable amounts of hatred and verbal and physical harassment. Against all adversity, eight of the Nine students remained at Central for the entire year. Ernest Green, the eldest of the group, became Central's first Black graduate. Minnie Jean Brown was the only one of the Nine to leave midway through the school year. Enduring much torment from the student body, she was suspended after retaliating by dropping her lunch tray with a bowl of chili on two white boys. She was later expelled for, quote, verbal retaliation after provocation, a.k.a. a white girl hit her and she called her white trash. Brown moved to New York City and graduated from New Lincoln High School in 1959. The next year, in an effort to stop integration efforts, Voters opted to close all four Little Rocks high schools. As a result, the rest of the nine, like other students across the district, were forced to take correspondence classes or attend private schools. All of the Little Rock nine eventually graduated from high school, and most of them went on to college. Their strength and perseverance marked one of the pivotal moments of the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. Nearly four decades later, the Little Rock Nine revealed the brutal reality they endured. What was that first day like, Carlotta? It was an atmosphere of uh, of hostility, of war. So you put on your you put on your armor, turn your face into your game face, and uh, got ready to to go to war. My mother and I almost got hanged that day. People with ropes circled underneath their arm and over their shoulder as they put it, ready to do business, ready to hang a nigga. Did you all cry? Did you ever go home and cry those nights? Oh, yeah. We had a lot of real physical pain to carry home to cry about. I really did get acid in my eyes. To this day, I wear glasses because the back of my right heel hurts because of people walking on the back of my heels. I carry scars on my legs for people kicking me. We all carry these scars in one form or another. Fun Facts, a.k.a. Death Stats. Prior to the Little Rock Nine, Central High's 1,900 attendees were all white. On September 23, 1957, the group did get into the building with police protection, but an angry mob of more than 1,000 white people had gathered in front of the school, chanting racist abuse. The year after the Little Rock Nine, in 1958, Citizens of Little Rock, Arkansas voted 19,470 to 7,571 against integration, prompting Governor Favis to close the city's high schools for the entire year. 19 U.S. Senators and 81 congressmen, including all eight members from Arkansas, signed the Southern Manifesto, denouncing the U.S. Supreme Court's decision and urging Southern states to resist it. According to the National Women's History Museum, Daisy Bates, president of the Arkansas NAACP chapter, recruited the nine students to integrate the all-white Central High School. Bates took on the responsibility of preparing the Little Rock Nine for the violence and intimidation they would face once inside and outside the school. She taught the students nonviolent tactics and even became actively involved with Central High School's parent organization. With us today, we have producer Amanda Lund. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Alarmy. Our fact checker today is Alarmy General Clayton Early. 
I'm happy to be here, and that's a fact. Oh, boy. And our very special guest (laughs) is Tony Rodriguez. Hi, Tony. Hi. I'm also happy to be here. I think you both need to leave. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Now, our listeners, uh, I just want to tell our listeners about your podcast, Tony. Uh, You're the co-host of Spanish Aki Presents. And they yes. uh, they also know your co-host Oscar Montoya from the uh, our circus train wreck episode. Um, Whoa! Yes. Oh, I didn't find that. Oh, I need to. Uh, I'll yeah. I'll listen to it as soon as we're done recording. Actually, yeah. can we just pause for a minute? Let's just play that episode. Re- let's, yeah, let's yeah. Just do that. <laughs> <laughs> but Tony, tell our listeners about remind our listeners about uh, the podcast. Sure. Uh, besides Oscar Montoya, I also host it with Ariza Licea and Carlos Santos. It's a Spanglish Latinx podcast. Uh, we talk about culture and politics and we have fun guests on. Usually we go into such tangents. I guess that's podcast uh, pandemic brain. <laughs> like We'll start with a heavy topic and then someone will bring up J-Lo and we're off and running. <laughs> Oh, we yeah, we can't relate here. We always stay on course. <laughs> Tony, we like to start our podcast by asking our guest, you know, what is something that is alarming you recently? I mean, I was just listening this morning to a piece about the Q- QAnon conspiracy theorists finding new methods of communicating with each other where, uh, what's it called? Where it's double encrypted mm. messaging apps oh. so that... So that nobody, you like, they're untraceable, right. or they can't. There's no record of it. So that's that was with my morning coffee this morning. I'm sure that will keep <laughs> yeah. me up tonight. That's good news. <laughs> that's great news. Good news, everybody. <laughs> Breaking freedom reigns. <laughs> Let's get started talking about the Little Rock Nine. And before we start putting people up on the board, I think we should talk about the students. I mean, really. These are children, right? And the things that they endured throughout their time in school. So the military assigned guards to escort them to classes, um, but the guards, however, couldn't go everywhere with the students. And, of course, the harassment continued in places such as, like, restrooms or locker rooms. So this was a constant. They were taunted. They were assaulted. They were spat upon by uh, the other white students. I read that a straw effigy of a black person was hung from a tree by the school. They were kept apart in different classes so that they couldn't vouch for each other's claims. I feel like a lot of high schoolers... You know, it's such a tr- difficult time anyway. You kind of go into it thinking or worrying that everybody hates you. But this is like a living nightmare where you know all of these people here are vocalizing their hatred for you. Like, what a terrifying experience. Yeah, including to to- the National Guard. Oh, oh that's so I can't imagine. crazy. I mean, yeah, the National Guard where Elizabeth is has said in interviews that the night before when she saw that the National Guard was going to be at the school, she was like, oh, okay, so they're there to protect us all. Mm -hmm. But then to realize Mm -hmm. that they weren't there to protect everyone, they were just there to keep her out. I mean, I can't imagine the kind of trauma that that would cause a person. Let's get some people up on the board. Uh, And first, I want to put the Arkansas governor, Orville Faubus. He sounds like a character from, like, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, you know, like an Archie comic <laughs> character. Yes. Oh, I, Actually, I, I just thought, I just thought, I just pictured Jughead. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you got one? Um, he's the one who ordered the National Guard and blocked the students from entering the school. 
According to encyclopediaofarkansas.net, Growing Resistance by Segregationists caught the attention of Faubus. He was known as a racial moderate. He calculated, however, that a moderate would stand small chance of re-election in 1958 against a determined white supremacist. So this is just to give you a little background on where he's at. It's 1957, right? He's got a big election coming mm. up in 1958. He's been to this up to this point. He's considered a racial moderate, but he's going to be up against a white supremacist. So what does he do? Mm. He leans in. On September 2nd, 1957, Fabus called the National Guard to block the admission of nine pupils at Central High. His justification was that violence threatened and he had to preserve the peace. A federal judge ordered the guardsmen removed. Now, Eisenhower federalized the National Guard and dispatched the Army troops to restore order and enforce the court's ruling. The troops stayed through the school year. Little Rock voted to close its high schools uh, the following year in a vain attempt to thwart further integration. Then, stung by bad publicity, the facing economic decline, and the city voted to reopen them with token integration. Faubus lost the battle with Eisenhower, but his actions ensured his election as governor four more times. Oh, my God. Now, do you guys think it's worse or better to pretend to be racist for personal gain? It's somehow... <laughs> it's really gross. It's really like, ooh. I, I think that's politics. I, I, I think it's disgusting. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But I feel like we're living it today where I've like every, every, every politician that says any racist, hateful speech, I'm like, what, what do you really believe? I almost like what... If you... If you I was going to say put a gun to their head, but no. Relax them with a cocktail in a cool bar. Ask them, like, what do you really think? And it's all about maintaining power at any, right, at any cost. And this base responds to it. We're talking about Republicans, right? Um, (laughs) I think so. Okay. But it's, oh, is it evil? I think think it's actually, I think it's just racism. It's racism. To pretend to be racist is just being racist. I think you're right. But maybe we also um, add politics up on the board. Yes. Yeah, that that could be good. Well, look, I do think it's racism, but I'm kind of with Amanda in that I have a feeling that it, it, it feels evil. Mm. I, I don't know. We don't talk about religion a lot in this in, in, in on this show, and you know, I'm not super like, uh, you know, uh, informed on like how the devil works. Mm. <laughs> oh, we'll breed. talk. Watch the breed. <laughs> I'm not super informed on that. Um, that docu series, Sabrina. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but, but it just—I don't know. Like to to take the form of whatever it is that is necessary to get something from an like something evil from another person or something bad from mm. another person. If that to me feels like evil, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you're like yeah. a, shape, they- a shapeshifter. Yeah. When they say drain the swamp, that's what they're talking about. People who will just do and say anything to remain in power. It's like, that's not, that's danger. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That feels like danger. That feels like. Whether it's like you really believe something, which is evil, I would think. Yeah. Or you're just using, using that for your own good. 
knowingly using that for your own good, is that that's also evil, right? I think yeah. so, because you're capitalizing like on people's hatred and fear. You know, like racism is all like fear, um, mm-hmm. but you're cap, you're exploiting that for your own personal gain and control and power, which is like, gr- so it's all gross, but that is somehow really despicable. And I think it's mm. just because it's so relevant with what yeah. we've seen going on today. It feels timely and it feels like you're taking advantage of people. I might argue it's even maybe more evil than let's say... Th- I'm, I just said the purely racist person who well, we can argue is racist out of ignorance, out of fear, out of, you know, a self-preservation, fear of the other. But someone who knowingly uses that for their own good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we're solving I think it's it. More, I think it's more uh, devil. Again, I don't, yeah. I'm not. <laughs> the devil incarnate. Well, I put yeah. evil politics. Evil politics. That's perfect. Okay. Yeah. Now, and Sabrina. <laughs> Sabrina, I think the chilling adventures of Sabrina should be on the board. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Nobody talks about that. It's true. Thank you, Tony, for bringing it up. Mm-hmm. Um, so we also have to put it up the superintendent. Superintendent Virgil Blossom. They are the architect of this plan for desegregation. Mm. And, of course, they didn't listen to the input, any input from the black community on how to go about it. I have a little bit to read here, but bear with me because I think it'll, it'll enlighten a lot. Encyclopedia of Arkansas History and Culture. Um, although he was generally a progressive, effective school administrator, his leadership during the crisis proved to be ineffectual and historians remain harsh in their assessment of his actions. Given the strong segregationist sentiment or, uh, among white Southerners, Blossom believed that the court's decision should have been delayed until a later date. Sorry, that's my phone. Immediately, however, Blossom and Little Rock School Board began making plans to integrate Little Rock schools. He hoped that the resulting plan, which became known as the Blossom Plan, would serve as a model for the desegregation of schools throughout the South. So he had like high hopes for his model. He wanted to be in the spotlight. He held meetings with, at, with various groups, both black and white, to determine how best to comply with the ruling. Uh, initially, he hoped to integrate starting with six-year-old elementary school students. Whether uh, this was to involve one or more schools remained unspecific, unspecified. And uh, to continue each year until all of the grades were integrated. But objections by white parents killed this plan. They especially feared that if black and white children became acquainted at an early age without learning, quote, proper social norms first... Mm-hmm. they would be more likely to become romantically involved as teenagers and adults. The, the initial plan is that he's, they're, they're going to do it with the younger kids, right? Because Well, that seems like it would make a lot of sense meets, because those yeah. kids don't have the same ingrained racism that the older oh, kids God. have. But it's like they were like, no, wait till they're racist and then let yeah. the black students come in. We so need that, to teach them racism first. Yeah. That is <laughs> at home. But Rebecca, to me, that seems like Virgil Blossom had a had a good idea. But are you? Yeah. Well, but, was but the then white this is what you, happened, right? Okay, he okay. didn't stand his ground. So okay. it, it goes on. At a meeting between the executive board of the Little Rock chapter of the National Association of the Advance, uh, uh, Advancement of Colored People, NAACP, and the city uh, school board in September of 1954, Blossom proposed the integration of four high schools, and this included uh, Little Rock Central. The school board adopted a different plan, however, because of continued white resistance to integration. So in January of 1956, 
the parents of 27 black students attempted to enroll the children, their children in four white elementary school, junior and high schools. Uh, Blossom rebuffed their efforts. So the, so these parents tried to enroll their kids in, in a variety of, of grades, right? He rebuffed them. This is before the Little Rock Nine. This is before. This is all happening before. This is why it ends up taking three years from when the Supreme Court uh, mm. rules that uh, segregating schools is un- unconstitutional to 1957. Okay. So he rebuffs uh, their efforts, and this leads the NAACP to file a lawsuit, Aaron versus Cooper, in the initial ruling, a- and an initial appeal resulted in a victory for Blossom. However, hearing the cases Cooper versus Aaron, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in favor of the plaintiffs later on in 1958. The decision established that federal court rulings had to be enforced by local officials regardless of their local popularity. So it doesn't matter if you like it in your town. If, mm. if the you know federal court says that you have to do it, then you have to do it. As Aaron versus Cooper was being adjudicated, Blossom continued his efforts to implement his revised plan. The number of black children involved dropped from an original number of 200 eligible students to 37 remaining after an initial screening. Of these, Blossom accepted only 17. When several students withdrew their application, only the nine remained. Wow. So that, okay, that was so the process. Really dwindled down. Wow. Yeah. Now, and it's, to me, it's really gross that he, out of the 200, he picked you know, 37 that he deemed, you know, worthy or whatever his initial screening was. And I shudder to think what the sort of requirements were. Yeah. Right. It's like the focus is on them being somehow like you guys got to like be perfect or whatever, not like we got to control people who are going to be unruly and inappropriate. Right. The focus is all on them. Chroniclers of the crisis reveal that Blossom as an overwhelmed by was overwhelmed by a chaotic situation. As a result, he ignored the input of African Americans, preventing them from having access to important meetings. His, so he that was something he, he actually did, and he treated black students unfairly. He approached the affair with a paternal autocratic attitude, refused to accept advice from others, and sought to shelter worth, wealthier whites from the effects of desegregation. He may even have deliberately sought to prevent desegregation, failing that he tried to delay and minimize it. Okay, I think we should also put white parents up on the board. White mm. parents, baby. <laughs> And I, I also think that there's, like, uh, an element of pride, too, at, at play here. Like, the fact that he doesn't think that he needs anyone else's help in coming up with a comprehensive plan. Mm-hmm. Like, he's... Mm-hmm. And his desire to have this plan be the, the thing that everyone uses in the country. It'd be one thing if he, like, actually was a true advocate, you know, and, like, a civil rights leader in any capacity. But the fact that it, going back to that evil politician thing where it's like, oh, this is something that I could use to make me for my own personal. Well, he gain. named it after himself. Right. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Like, I don't think my Miam Bialik, I don't think she even writes on her own calendar, like the Blossom plan. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering where that like, was going. <laughs> but it connected. It connected. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I'm so sorry. Every time he said it, I pictured a funny hat. 
Um, it, is, it, it is fun to picture him with a funny hat at all the yeah. uh, board meetings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know I want to see him in jail with that little Blossom hat on. Yes. <laughs> yes. Just to humiliate him. <laughs> yeah. I also think we should put the actual Blossom plan up on the okay, board. Yes. Got, got that. Man, the pol- politicizing of children. Mm. <laughs> like, it's Julie. Children are just pawns every, in everything, right? From, let's say, vaccination to queer rights to desegregating schools. It's, oh, it makes me, my skin crawl. It does, because we're sending these kids to do the work that these adults yeah. should be doing. So we're using these kids as like the battering ram to break down the door. Thank you. Yeah. That's what I was okay. trying to say. That's what we pay okay. him for. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with room and board <laughs> and coffee. Yeah, yeah. Wayne just lives in the podcast studio. <laughs> yeah, I don't exist when this podcast is not happening. So I'm always oh, grateful no. when you guys come back. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. Max he shuts Headroom. down. He shuts down. Yeah. Well, but should we put the politicizing of children on yeah. the board? I think it's interesting that the Supreme Court ruling came before uh, uh, of the schools, right? Came before the Montgomery bus uh, boycott. So b- that was mm. before Rosa Parks and, and then the whole boycott for the, whole, for the entire year. And then that's when the Little Rock, afterwards is when the Little Rock Nine oh. go to school. So it, it almost like started with the schools. That led to other things. And then, um, and then now the kids are going into the fire that has already been, you know, started. Mm-hmm. It's like yeah. such a scary time to send these like poor, innocent, naive kids in, mm-hmm. in, into the fire. What's really great is like through all that adversity, you like they all went on to be like very successful in their own right. Yeah. And, you know, they get together for reunions and like la- they, someone was saying like they always laugh like teenagers when they're together again. It's kind of amazing that they were able to persevere through that. Hmm. Yeah. So like, so Melba Patillo, she became a journalist. This is according to a Guardian article that came out in 2017. Uh, oh, she wow. became a journalist and an author and lives in San Francisco. Carlotta Walls, uh, the youngest of the nine, became a property broker in Denver. Elizabeth Eckford, who was the first one to show up at school, served in the Army and became a probation officer and lives in Little Rock. Ernest Green served in the Jimmy Carter administration and worked for Lehman Brothers in Washington, D.C. Gloria Ray worked as an aerospace research technician and lives in the Netherlands and Sweden. Whoa. Badass. (laughs) Damn. Terrence Roberts became a psychologist and a management executive in Pasadena, California. (laughs) (laughs) Thelma Mothershed, uh, she had a career as a teacher and then worked with young offenders and the homeless. And then Jefferson Thomas fought in Vietnam, became an accounting clerk with the Defense Department, and he was the one who passed away from pancreatic cancer in 2010. So they all went on to have, you know, very successful, fruitful lives. I I can only imagine that there were stumbles along the way and the the trauma that they, you know, experienced. So... I think that we should also put racism up on the board. I feel it's pretty uh, yes. self-explanatory. Why? Uh, <laughs> no, let's go back. I'm confused. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry. How do you pronounce that? <laughs> Rakism? Rakism. <laughs> um, so 
but yeah, I'll still read something about it. Uh, the Guardian article says that the Little Rock Nine could be forgiven uh, a sense of frustration at such uneven prog- progress. They're talking about um, our current state. Um, it's all institutional and it's all centuries old, says uh, Tricky. Um, so we're seeing the result of policies that have been made over time. It has been more visible because the people who are running the country now are profoundly intentionally ignorant. Mm. So we talk about that a lot in our podcast. Um <laughs> Uh, after the the first black U.S. president was succeeded by a man supported by white supremacists and the Ku Klux Klan, Tricky says history is coming full circle. People want people went into their basements and pulled out the old signs that they used in the in Little Rock, in Selma, and across oh the country. God. "Quote: You, you got to think yeah. these people have the people who are yelling at these the Little Rock Nine. You know some of them were at these rallies. Yes, these Trump rallies. Oh, absolutely. And, and saying that." Her Chilling. point is that they're saying the same thing. They're saying, quote, integration is a sin. Integration is an abomination against God. Integration is communism. These are the things they were saying then. And they're, they're using the ones that they used 60 years ago. But they were, uh, but there will be young people like the Little Rock Nine who are going to keep going. I'm going to try and train as many of them as I can. This mm-hmm. is one of this is a quote from one of the nine. Yeah. So racism, I mean, and that can also encompass like the Jim Crow laws, segregation, mm-hmm. like we'll, we'll use racism as our sort of all encompassing. How did Umbrella, we get to yeah. this point? Right. Mm-hmm. OK, what else do we got? Because we're coming up on time. So OK, throw, throw some more names on the board. We got to put the reactionary groups up on the board. Uh, the white supremacists, obviously. And they're called, in, in, this is according to Encyclopedia of Arkansas, in Little Rock, the Capital Citizens Council, a local version of the White Citizens Councils that were emerging across Arkansas and the South, formed in 1956 to promote public resistance to desegregation. Mm. The organization purchased newspaper advertisements attacking integration and held rallies at which speakers challenged Arkansas Arkansas to resist. Um, so they were obviously very active in trying to stop the desegregation or the integration of schools. Sounds like uh, Donald Trump taking out his advertisement for the Central Park Five, right? <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Wow. So... Yeah. In in these uh, this group closely aligned with this Capital Citizens Council was the Mothers League of Central High. Uh oh, doesn't sound Uh-oh. good. So it was formed by <laughs> Margaret Jackson and Nadine Aaron in August, and petition they petitioned the governor to prevent desegregation at the schools. So very active. Uh, the group filed a petition in August of 57. This is before they got they even showed up at the school seeking a temporary injunction against integration. Polanski, Pulaski Chancellor Murray Reed granted the injunction injunction on the grounds that desegregation could lead to violence. How screwed up is that? Now, yeah, it's I like violence s- by your kids against the black students. <laughs> right, exactly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, I just want to point out that white supremacists, they come in all genders, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. All shapes and sizes. <laughs> mm-hmm. But they're, all, they're the same color normally. Same color. Usually, yeah. But they can be different shapes and sizes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
And now let's take a quick break to speak with guest expert Dr. John Kirk, history professor at University of Arkansas at Little Rock, and hear what he has to say about some of these reactionary groups. What were some of the reactionary groups that formed in Arkansas as a, as a resistance to desegregation? Uh, and what part did they play in all of this? Right. Uh, at the very forefront was the white citizens councils, which formed across the South after Brown versus Board of Education. They formed with the explicit uh, program of preventing school desegregation from occurring. And uh, the head of the white citizens councils in Arkansas was uh, a man called James D. Johnson, or as they called him, Justice Jim Johnson. He was later, later sat on the Arkansas Supreme Court. And he built his political career as a fairly young man on the basis of opposing Brown v. Board of Education, which many politicians did in the South. He was kind of a political opponent of Orville Forbes. And he was a Democrat too. Of course, Arkansas was solidly Democratic at the time. You know, the state was, you know, part of the solid Democratic South, one of the most solid Democratic states in the South. So Republicans didn't really feature at all. And uh, the vying for Democratic power was the most important thing. So Forbes was elected in 1954, uh, just uh, after Brain v. Board of Education. And throughout the uh, campaigns, uh, he remained fairly ambivalent. He said it should be handled at a local level. And, you know, he kind of trod a line between moderation and, you know, support for for segregation, but not a kind of militant uh, opposition to it. But in 1956, when he ran again, there were just two terms, two-year terms for governor then, Jim Johnson entered the race. So Jim Johnson entered the race in 1956, and he took on Forbes for the right to be governor. And, of course, Jim Johnson was a firebrand uh, pro-segregationist and had pretty extreme militant, uh, you know, segregationist rhetoric. And many observers would say that pushed Forbes into taking a stronger anti-segregation, anti-desegregation stand himself. So in fighting these primaries, Johnson kind of helped to... Uh, stiffen Forbes' stand against uh, segregation, and therefore he started to make much more pro-segregation noises. Uh, But interestingly, after the election, when Forbes had won, he started to back away from that again and started to go back to his more moderate stance and, you know, some of the things that he got through the Arkansas General Assembly to prevent uh, school desegregation, he didn't really fully implement. So Forbes sort of backed off again. So the resistance is really important in terms of changing the political atmosphere in Arkansas at the time and making the state, forcing the state to take a much more uh, pro-segregation stance. Listen to our full interview with guest expert Dr. John Kirk on Thursday's Aftermath episode. Now back to our conversation. So we also have to put President Eisenhower up on the board. Okay. According to History.com, the intense standoff continued over several weeks as the National Guard continued to surround the school in defiance of the uh, judge's ruling. To discuss a solution, Governor Fabus visited President Eisenhower at his retreat in Newport, Rhode Island. Eisenhower faced a complicated predicament. He believed in adhering to the Constitution, but he wasn't outwardly passionate about civil rights and didn't speak in support of the Brown ruling. So that's not adhering to the Constitution. Um, wow. Like, what do you mean, Jesus? Wow. I, I can't believe, like, he wasn't outwardly passionate about civil rights. How- right. That's if you're not, not passionate about civil rights, I, I don't know what you're passionate about. Well, like, it's like how you were saying Orville Faubus was like a moderate 
on moderate on race, which is such, I, I mean, as we're learning what? now, like with the Black Lives Matter and like the anti-racist and like we're, we're so much more educated on that now that like you, you can't be moderate about this stuff like that. <laughs> if you're moderate about it, you're or indifferent, you're racist. Yeah. yeah. But it's just that that's, yeah. even that idea is so insane to me that you're just like neutral on it. <laughs> you either believe it or you, you either believe, you know, everyone is equal or you don't. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And you're or and if you're moderate, then you just don't want to talk about your stance on it. Oh, there's that where you're like, ah, uh, just trying to disengage from politics oh, or trying to disengage from a conversation. Yeah. Right. Just, I just think we should all be nicer to each other. I just think there's so much hate in the world. So yeah. what but, would you but when you're uh, the president? That. That's such a weird thing for the yeah. president. <laughs> well, yeah, we definitely don't want our presidents to feel that way. The, the president, but I'm just not po- political. <laughs> Eisenhower. Uh. But I think that's interesting what Tony is saying that like we uh, what what is that called? It's like not wanting to privilege, not having a point of view is privilege. You're right. Yeah, I I think Mm -hmm. it is. Should we just put privilege on there? Racial privilege, racial privilege to be specific. Yeah. Yeah. So and and another Mm -hmm. thing about Eisenhower was that he didn't call like it took him almost three weeks to call the you know federal troops. To, to escort these kids into the school. And yeah. the only nice. reason he ended up doing this was because it, it was getting bad press across, you know, in other internationally. And he didn't want to look like a weak person. He didn't want to look like, a, he didn't want to look weak because there were states that weren't adhering to the court's ruling. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Evil politics, it goes back into that. There's one last thing I want to put up on the board, and that is... No phones. No phones. Go on. Mm. (laughs) Now, Clayton knows about my anxiety about phones. And, of course, this is 1957, so the the phone conversation back then is different, right? People Mm -hmm. (laughs) didn't have phones like they do. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But one of the (laughs) reasons that Elizabeth Eckerd goes to school alone first is because her family didn't have a phone. So the night before, Daisy Bates and all the NAACP NAACP, um, people realize that there's going to be trouble. Once they call the National Guard, they're like, oh, shoot, this is going to be bad tomorrow. So they called all the kids and were like, we're going to set these like local ministers. You're going to gather with these local ministers, and then you're all going to walk together into the school. But... Mm -hmm. Elizabeth's family didn't have a phone, and so she didn't know to meet where they were going to meet. Oh, wow. My God. Send a messenger. Yeah. This is the olden times. <laughs> Send. Mm-hmm. I mean. Oh, man, that's. I mean, I, I, mm-hmm. I know what I'm a little biased when it comes to the phone situation because I have anxiety about people not having their phones at all time. Like, I think you should. Oh, I really do wow. think in this day and age. I'm not saying, like, be on social media your entire <laughs> life. So okay. you're the opposite of moms because moms against phones are like, it's bad for you. It's going to give you cancer. Mm-hmm. You spend all your time on that phone and you're like, give, give them two phones. Moms for phones. Phone. <laughs> two phones okay. in case they lose one of them. Yeah, a backup phone. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm all pro the flip phone, you know, the flip phone without any like games or whatever. Sure. Mm-hmm. You're yeah. really pro walkie talkie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So we have to start deciding who's to blame, but first we have to take a quick break. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress and anxiety we carry around as we go about our everyday life. At The Alarmist, we know it's always better to say it out loud and talk it through. Whenever I stress about the sinking of the Titanic, I don't sit with those thoughts in a dark room. I turn on the lights and dive right into it. Therapy is a great place to get things off your chest and work through what's really going on. Maybe you can't stop spiraling or catastrophizing. I started therapy over 10 years ago and never looked back. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Heck, we sometimes change our minds and rethink the verdict at The Alarmist. And that's also okay when it comes to therapists. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Alarmist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Alarmist. The Little Rock Nine, who is to blame? We have the Arkansas Governor Orville Faubus. Evil Politics. Superintendent Virgil Blossom, the Blossom Plan, White Parents, the politica, I can't say it, politization of children. Wow, that's a hard word for me. Politization. That's all right. Wait, you say it. Politization. Tony, you said it the first time. Politicization of children. That's too sexy for podcasts. I'm here to talk about politicizing children. What Tony said. Um, Racism. Reactionary groups, white supremacists, Capital Citizens Council, Mother's League of Central High. Uh, For example, we have President Eisenhower, racial privilege and lack of phones. Mm -hmm. Well... I think we're going to have to send everyone to jail, honestly. Who, what are we going to yeah. cross off? What are we going to start? 
crossing off here. How do you do this? We can fold well, some stuff into yeah. other stuff. Yes. I think, I think the blossom I, I plan can fold into Virgil Blossom himself. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Which can fold into evil politics. Oh. Yeah, because the superintendent, it, it's interesting because he, it's like just how the governor was sort of like playing evil politics. So was the superintendent by sort of folding to the white parents in mm-hmm. a way. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I and the white parents are the base that they're catering to, which is part of evil politics, oh. which is also part of the politicization of children. <laughs> say it again. Say it again. The blood of children. <laughs> <laughs> That is um, true. Uh, yeah. Oh, you know what? Let's take um, uh, the superintendent, Virgil Blossom, off. Oh, no, no. I can't, I can't take him off. Too, it's too soon. It's too soon. That hat. Okay. That hat's hard to leave. To, to <laughs> mm-hmm. The Blossom hat. Uh, I think we can wrap racial privilege and the reactionary groups into racism. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sure. And I think the, the politicization... Perfect, of, right? Yeah. Of children. I, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I said that so wrong. Um, that that is wrapped into evil politics, right? Yeah. Because you're yes. you're using children to do dirty work, essentially. Mm. Right. So I also think yes. Thank you for. I, I didn't really think we would blame no phones, but I just wanted to make sure. Um, <laughs> Get it on the board. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think we can take that off now. Finally, we have the governor. We have evil politics, the idea. Superintendent Virgil Blossom. White parents and racism. And Eisenhower. He somehow got deleted, but he's still on there. Oh, Eisenhower. Yeah. You know what's not on the board. What? What? Capitalism. You got it. Oh, boy. Like Clayton. Let's make it. I don't think it needs to be. I don't think it needs to be. I'm I'm just making the point that this is an episode where I really feel like there's no place for capitalism Mm. in this conversation. Wow. I mean. I'm sure we could find it. We could always. I'm sure we could, but we don't need to reach. (laughs) Yeah. Um, All of this is covered in the chilling adventures of Sabrina. (laughs) (laughs) The chilling adventures of capitalism. Oh, the capitalistic adventures of Sabrina. (laughs) Oh, no. We've lost them. They need to go. They're going down the rabbit hole. <laughs> Love that. So do we maybe make them racist white parents? Because mm. it's not just, uh, well, I guess you could right. say some white, white parents weren't racist, right? We don't know if at all. Of course. But we, don't, no. we also don't know how, if any of them spoke out uh, about it or if they didn't. Mm-hmm. So... Because of the fact that we don't know, we just maybe we call it the racist white parents. Yeah, mm-hmm. we could we could wrap the white parents up into racism. Yeah, right. Do yeah. you like yeah. that? Yeah, we love it. Okay, <laughs> <Thank> yeah. We <laughs> <laughs> we love wrapping things up into racism. <laughs> A lot on the board could be wrapped up into racism, but I just there's something about Orville. That yeah, I just, Orville for Orville. me. Like, I don't think that that goes beyond racism almost. Mm-hmm. That goes into evil politics. Evil mm-hmm. politics. And it goes into self, like, uh, it's like greed. It's like mm-hmm. he wanted to be governor and he wanted to win his reelection and he doesn't care about his constituents. He doesn't care about the children that are going to school in his state. He doesn't care about the He does, world. but of a certain color right. he cares about. Mm. 
to me, there it, it goes beyond racism for for it when it when it's in terms of uh, the governor. I mean, Eisenhower, like he should have done more. I don't think you can blame him because he was, in theory, siding with the Constitution. And but he was a shameful participant. It was when and in push a way, came to shove, he was on mm-hmm. the right side. Right. But, but in a way, it's like, you know, the way our country is, is like the states have so much power. Right. So mm-hmm. there, there is something to say about like Arkansas, and then that ties into the governor. Oh, should we have put Arkansas on the board? Perhaps we should have put the state of Arkansas. <laughs> I mean, although this kind of thing, but well, there were many yeah. racist states, yeah. but Arkansas yes. for this specific one, I mean, they didn't really right. handle it right. But uh, you know what? I, I feel f- like we are, we would have folded that into the governor mm-hmm. anyway. I think so too. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, now we have to figure out between these four, the Arkansas governor, evil politics, superintendent, Virgil Blossom and racism, who's going to jail and who's getting the big slap. What are we thinking? I, I mean, I think we could wrap up Virgil and Orville into evil politics. And then between evil politics and racism, we can decide who's going to jail and who's getting the slap. Interesting, Amanda. That is interesting. I, I was kind of going the other way where you where we blame Orville himself. Okay. I mean, we could wrap evil politics and Virgil into, into Orville, Orville. And then slap racism? Because... The evil politics enables the racism, the racist policies to be enacted. Like it, it right. gives it racism power, right? Yes. That, so are you saying that we should slap evil politics? I'm, I'm almost, I'm wondering if we should slap racism fucking hard and <laughs> uh, give the, put evil politics in the slammer. I'm wondering because oh. they, because. Because they allow I mean, people like Orville to take advantage. Al- yeah. I don't know. Okay. Um, I don't know. Ooh, man. But the, the, the idea of Orville walking away a free man. Oh. Well, right. I that mean, doesn't here's feel the good. thing. Evil politics is, is broad. When it comes to this specific instance, it was definitely an exacerbating influence, right? Mm-hmm. But... Orville and Blossom made like some more specific choices that affected right. the outcome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm not really, I haven't decided one way. It's like what, it's like kind of like a chicken or the egg. It's like what's first, mm-hmm. the politics or the well, politicians? Yeah, I guess, you know, the evil politics allow this kind of thing to happen. But also, we still have a choice, right? As people, like we can be good and we can be bad. So he didn't have to use these evil po- politics to you know when when his when his governorship when when his election he could have not done it and therefore i think the blame is more like a personal so, okay. than just general i think it's fair okay. so we wrap okay. up evil politics and take virgil blossom off is that what you're thinking yeah you know what we're gonna make sure that he has to wear a blossom hat for the rest of his life <laughs> mm, wow that's a gentle you know, I, slap okay i'm calling it Racism, you're getting the big slap. The Arkansas governor, Orville Faubus, you're going to the alarmist jail. Ooh. It's not the first time racism gets slapped, right? Not the last. We should just it slap it every episode. <laughs> we basically do. <laughs> Between that and capitalism. If I, if I can, can we 
real quick, just give the Little Rock Nine the big clap. Oh, yeah. Let's yeah. do it. Let's give the Little like Rock that. Nine because I, like I think that. they deserve it. Little Rock Nine, you're getting the big clap. Yeah. Tony, thank you so much for joining us today and helping us get to the bottom of who's to blame for the events that happened to the Little Rock Nine. Thank you so much for having me. I love this. After the Little Rock Nine, the Nine were awarded the Congressional Gold Medal by President Bill Clinton in 1999 and have met for reunions, particularly on anniversaries. According to an article on The Guardian, the legacy of the Little Rock Nine is nonlinear and a cause for both optimism and caution. While significant strides were made towards desegregation in the 70s and 80s, a series of decisions by the Supreme Court between 1991 and 2007 authorized the termination of cross-district busing, local courts' supervision of desegregation plans, and limited use of race-based admissions. An interplay of race, class, and geography is at work, including the middle class's ability to self-replicate by buying homes near the best-funded schools. The Civil Rights Project at UCLA reported in 2016 a striking rise in double segregation by race and poverty for African American and Latino students concentrated in schools that, quote, rarely attain the successful outcomes typical of middle-class schools with largely white and Asian student populations. According to the AP, the Little Rock School District today is about two-thirds black and has been under state control since 2015 due to low academic performance. Vote for who you think is to blame by going to thealarmistpodcast.com. Follow us at the Alarmist the on Twitter, at the Alarmist Podcast on Instagram, or email us at thealarmistpodcast at gmail.com. Discussing who's to blame for the Britney Spears conservatorship. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.